A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ten years ago, one of the funniest comedy movies of all time premiered. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than this. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm good. good. I feel I'm so much more relaxed. Thank you, Helen. I just feel like I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party with the best of them. And I'm gonna go down to the river. <laughs> This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was perhaps my single favorite clip from Bridesmaids, directed by today's guest, Paul Feig. Bridesmaids, which was produced by Judd Apatow and written by Annie Mumolo and star Kristen Wiig, first hit theaters in May 2011, prompting all kinds of lame think pieces about whether women were actually funny now. But 10 years later, it really just stands the test of time as a hilariously rewatchable gem of a movie that never seems to get old. I was just so excited to get a chance to dig deep on all things Bridesmaids with Paul Feig, from how he had to break out of movie jail to land the gig, to how they put together the pitch-perfect cast, to how the film's success totally transformed his career as a comedy director. And because I'm also a little bit obsessed with Freaks and Geeks, he also answered some of my burning questions about that show towards the end of our conversation. All right, let's do this. Here's me with Paul Feig. So you're in Belfast. Are you you're filming a movie there? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to start shooting uh, in a week and a half, but I'm prepping here. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. First time in Belfast. Been in Ireland before, but never Northern, Northern Ireland. But uh it's fun. It's a beautiful city. Really nice people. And is this Spy Two or something else? No, no, no. there's no Spy Two. Spy um, Two is not a is, is not a reality. Not yet. a thing yet. No. Hopefully someday. But um, a movie called The School for Good and Evil that uh, I'm doing for Netflix. Big uh, big movie. Uh, but I'm excited about it. It's a it's, it's a fun one. So I wanted to have you on. You know now uh, because we are just upon the. 10th anniversary of Bridesmaids, which is kind of insane to think about. Does it feel like it's been 10 years uh, for you since since that movie? No, no, it doesn't. Uh, it's <laughs> this old, uh, as you get older, time goes faster. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought we just did that movie. But what's nice is that people are still talking about it, which, you know, doesn't often happen with when you make things for movies or TV or anything, really. So uh, I'm thrilled about that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one of my absolute favorites. And I think I just rewatched it again this week for probably, you know, the 12th time or something. And it just really, really holds up um, and is so funny still. But I'd really just love to kind of start at the beginning. Um, Where were you in your career when this movie came to you and when it started to look like a possibility that you might be able to direct it? Uh, I was in movie jail, deep in the thing called movie jail, because I had made, yeah, on the company Miners for Warner Brothers. It was a Christmas family movie and it didn't do well. It, you know, lost money. Uh, and that's that's the best way to get into movie jail <laughs> is to <laughs> lose money for a studio. You know, and it wasn't a big movie. It just, it was what it was. And, you know, I'm very I'm proud of all my, all my, all my babies, but, uh, it just didn't connect for, you know, whatever reason. Yeah. So I was doing a lot of television, but it was right when I was actually doing 
finishing post-production on, on Unaccompanied Minors, the Judd had called me up and said, hey, I'm going to do a table read for this thing that Kristen wrote. Because actually, I put Kristen in Unaccompanied Minors. It was her first movie role, and it was tiny. I mean, you blink and you miss her, but um, but she's so funny, and I love her. And so, you know, hey, I, you might want to come to this table read. I think you'll like it. It's got all these great female roles in it, and, you know, it's a really, you know, it, it'd be fun. So I... I've been dying to do more female-driven projects and went to this table read, and it was great. It was really funny. It was like a very early, early version of the script, but you could see everything was there. And I remember just looking at this table of all these these great comedic actresses and just going like, and it wasn't it wasn't our cast. It, it was it was. Kristen was reading, obviously, and uh, Annie Mumolo was reading. Melissa McCarthy was reading several different roles. Um, and I, I didn't even know who she was back then, but, you know, I remember thinking she was very funny. She didn't read the Megan part at all. Actually, Annie Mumolo, Annie Mumolo read the, read that part. And then a bunch of other really hilarious women were up there. And I remember just going like, Oh my gosh, this, this would be so great to do. Like what a chance to really, you know, find the perfect cast and, and, and do this. And, you know, Judd had kind of, you know, said, wouldn't you want to come on? board and kind of, you know, shepherd it. But at the time I had the movie Warner Brothers and that we were supposed to go right into another movie before the icy door of movie jail <laughs> slammed in my face. And so I kind of like, oh, I don't have time, but let me know when, you you know, when, when you, as you develop the script and, you know, move to the next stage, please let me know. And then I would check in with him every, you know, like twice a year just to see what was up. And it never quite knew what was going on with it. Then at one point it seemed like it was dead. And so I just kind of, you know, went, oh, that's a bummer because it was a great opportunity. And then and it was in 2010, I was in New York directing a bunch of commercials, internet commercials for Macy's, starring people like, you know, Martha Stewart, uh, Tommy Hilfiger, and and Donald Trump. Yes, I directed <laughs> Donald Trump. Yes, I did. That's a whole other story in itself. Um, but I remember coming back to the hotel, kind of just going like, oh, what's my career? You know, like not complaining, but just like, I always wanted to make movies and I'm in movie jail and I can't do it. And I'm making these commercials. <laughs> and I got a call from my agent saying like, hey, that, that wedding movie is alive again. And I was like, oh, I didn't hear about it. About it. And I, I thought, you know, I figured Judd would have called me. So I figured, oh, they probably got somebody else. But he said, no, there's an opening. I said, well, just put my name on a list with a bunch of other directors because maybe Judd doesn't want me to do it anymore. And like within five minutes, I got a call from Judd like, OK, we're going to do this. Just go, you know, sit down with Kristen to make sure she's cool with it. And uh, yeah, then suddenly, boom, it, it was it was going. Going back to that, you know, first time that you uh, were at the table read for the for Bridesmaids, what were your first impressions of both you know, the script, but then also, you know, Melissa McCarthy reading these other roles, because you've now obviously worked with her probably more than anybody else. So what was what was that experience of seeing her for the first time like? Well, it, it was, I mean, honest, to be 100% honest, it wasn't, it wasn't impression making on a singular, you know, kind of level because everybody was reading a bunch of different roles and kind of just filling in things. So table reads are, are weirdly, it's, it's kind of hard to showcase at a table read because of the nature of it. Cause you're just sort of reading from a script and people are kind of, you know, a lot of people are just following along in their script and you're hearing it. But like the last thing you want when you do table reads, somebody like, really, you know, going for it and hamming it up and, you know, or like putting on a show, you're more in service of the script. So honestly, I didn't have any impression of her. I had more of this kind of impression of like, oh, look at the possibilities once we would then move this into like casting and, and making a movie. And the irony was that um, we didn't see Melissa until very late in the, in the process of casting. And in the intervening time, I had, and before that, had been trying to cast 
roles that were very perfect for Melissa in things I was working on, either TV pilots or that kind of thing, and yet had never seen her ever. <laughs> I, well, I guess she had been working when 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 we were trying to cast something. So obviously, you don't come in if you can't get the job. But I knew her husband, Ben Falcone, who also was in Unaccompanied Minors. <laughs> it all goes back. It does. But Department Store Santa, because Ben had been on this really hilarious um, Washington Mutual commercial. And I going to I remember saying to Allison Jones back then, going like, oh, who's that guy in that commercial? He's so funny. She, oh, that's Ben Falcone. He's great. So I love Ben, cast him in it. So then when I finally saw Melissa and she came in for an audition and blew us all away, it was only after I cast her that Allison goes, you know, she's married to Ben Falcone, right? It's like, what? So that's what's like, well, Ben has to be in the movie. And that's why, you know, we put Ben in as uh, Air Marshal John and... Um, um, for anyone who doesn't know, you know, Allison Jones is sort of the the secret weapon, not only of a lot of things that you've done, um, this movie and Freaks and Geeks and a lot of other things, but kind of like every great comedy that's happened in the last, you know, decade and a half. She is the mother of modern comedy. 20 she years, has found yeah. every funny person that you love now. She has found so I really do want to kind of dig into the casting process on this movie because it's it's incredible. So, well, to start with with Melissa McCarthy, so she came in, she auditioned at some point in the process. Yeah, late in the process. We we had seen a lot of really funny, you know, talented people for the role of Megan that all had very different takes on it. But we just we love there's so many people that were real hardcore contenders, but it was just that feeling of like, I don't think we've like found the perfect person yet. And it was in this uh, one of these late sessions where Kristen and Annie said, oh, you should see our friend Melissa. You know, she she's a groundling and like people line up around the block when she's performing because she's so funny and everybody loves her. And I was like, well, cool, <laughs> bring her in. Why didn't we see her before? And she came in with this completely different take on the character. And, um, you know, it, it almost took me like 15 seconds to kind of even process what she was doing because it was so different. What were other people doing that was different than what she ended up doing? People were playing her various forms of either kind of comedically dumb or weird or quirky and all really valid choices. I mean, you know, like I said, there's some people, you know, really good, but she brought this, that weird kind of like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, at first I kind of thought she was playing it gay and I thought, oh, that's a really cool thing that she's doing. And it was funny because just this kind of like, uh, you know, the way she was, I don't know, there was an attitude she had that was just very kind of funny. And so I said, oh, let's do an improv. And it like, where you're trying to ask, you know, Kristen's character to go out with you. And she go, okay, yeah, great. So she started doing this thing, but then she's going, okay, we're going to get all these men and we're just going to eat them alive. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, wait, oh. so there's a lot going on in this character, you know, and, and then her improvs were so funny and um, she was just making up all this stuff. And, and it was, yeah, so she left and, and as she tells the story, she left going like, oh my God, I completely blew that. Why did I act so weird? Why did I do all this stuff? And, and we were just like high-fiving of like, oh my God, that's her. That's her. Um, yeah. And then the rest was history. Right? The other thing that's really striking about the cast is that there are a, few, a couple people who were really not known for comedy before doing this movie. You know, thinking about Rose Byrne and John Hamm, both of whom were really known for their dramatic work. Was that something where you, is that part of what made you want to cast them is that they weren't known for comedy and might play it in a different way? Well, with Rose, it was, again, we'd been seeing a lot of comedic actresses for that role who are all, re again, really great and really funny. It just, it was this feeling, I remember just going like, I think we need, I think we need like a dramatic actress for that just because I think 
that's the most dangerous role because it can easily fall into stereotype of like, oh, she's uptight and she's, you know, you know, the, the classic kind of villainess in, in, in a movie. And I didn't want that. I wanted it to be, there's not, you know, Kristen and I were very, Kristen and I were very much in lockstep about this. It's not, there's no cat fighting in this. There's no like, oh, women can't get along. You know, this is, and I'd always said like this, the character of Helen is a very well-meaning character because if you look at, if you look at the movie from Helen's point of view, here's Lillian played by my Maya, who is this very smart, you know, kind of together person. And then there's Kristen's character, who is a mess. When Rose Byrne meets Kristen's character, she is a mess. And to so to Rose Byrne goes like, oh, my friend is so great. And she's got this toxic friend who's dragging her down. I need to very in a very loving way extract her out of this friendship and into a better, you know, a better world. And so I wanted that you know, we wanted that three-dimensionality to to uh, Helen's character. You know, and we're thinking about what dramatic actress is, but then Judd one day said, he called me in his office, he goes, uh, go down to the editing room, because the editing suites, uh, his editing suites are in his offices, and they were doing um, editing, get into the Greek. And he said, he said, take a look at Rose Byrne. She's really funny in the movie. I was like, Rose Byrne? I said, I love her from Damages, and, you know, for, I love all her dramatic, but I didn't think of her, but at the same time, we were thinking about an actress. So I was like, oh, you know, like a, like a dramatic actress for this. So I went down and they showed me some of her scenes. And I was like, wow, she's really funny. Like she just, you know, I have you've seen that movie, but she, her character is very funny in that, that kind of British kind of rock star thing she's doing. And so then I, then I had her do a chemistry read, do an audition with, with Kristen in New York. And we watched the tape of it and they were just so funny together because just the, the difference between them, just everything about them is so comedically different. And, um, I was just completely sold and a comedic star was born. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. She's gone on to do some incredible comedy work. Oh my God. Totally. And then obviously John Hamm being the other one who, who obviously wasn't credited in the film. I know there's some story about how he, he didn't want to be credited because he was worried about how it would how it would make people think differently about the movie. I don't know. He just he just said, I'll do it, but I just don't want credit for it. He's like, yeah, cool, <laughs> okay. John, that's fine. Yeah. But I, I knew John because I had directed in the first episode, uh, first season of Mad Men. And, you know, it's funny because I, I got sent, I had just had like a bad experience on another show. And so I kind of came out of that episode going like, I don't think I want to direct TV anymore. <laughs> like, I, you know, you're kind of a hired hand sometimes and it's easy to kind of get pushed around. And so right then, like when I was in like my, my worst day, they sent me the pilot to, to Mad Men, you know, and said, you know, they'd like you to direct an episode. And I was like, forget it. You know, but I remember <laughs> watching it, liking it and going, it was a really great show. But I remember going like, but that guy who plays the lead, he's great, but boy, he seems like the most serious, unfun <laughs> guy in the world. So I was like, oh, I don't even know if I want to deal with with a guy like that. So then, you know, weeks go by and I kind of thought, oh, I should do it, you know. And so I get to the set and, you know, Matt Weiner's taking me around and meeting everybody. And then, like, suddenly some guy comes up, like, surfer dude, who's kind of making all these jokes and he's doing these voices. And I'm laughing with him and we're kind of having fun. And he walks away and I go, like, who's that? And he goes, well, that's Don Draper. That's John Hamm who plays Don. I said, that's the guy? Like, I thought that guy was super not funny. And I go, like, he's the funniest guy I know. And it turns out John Hamm's, like, this the comedy nerd. I yeah, mean, he knows everything about comedy. Yeah, like, like we used to do in high school. Like, he can, you know, recite Monty Python and all that kind of thing. So, um, but then I'd also, so I love John and we'd always been friends and kind of stayed in contact since then. But then also he had just um, hosted uh, Saturday Night Live and he was 
crushed it, you know, when he would host that show. And I remember Kristen and I were, were sitting around having our, you know, coffee when we were deciding, you know, she was wanting me to do the movie. And um, we're saying, like, John's got to do this. But I was thinking, at first I was kind of like, oh, he could play the cop. And then she's like, oh, but he, how funny would he be as, as the boyfriend? I was like, oh, my God, if we get John to play an asshole, that would be hilarious. And, you know, there we go. You look tired. If you're tired, you can totally lay down in my lap. If you want. What? Just take a little lap nap. If you want. Open for biz. Okay, can you just can you just pull over? Ooh, yeah. Actually that's an even better idea. No, no, no. Can you please just stop the car? I wanna get out. No, it's super gravelly. Please pull over. Why? Because I would rather get murdered out here than spend the next Half an hour with you. Can you please, can you please just pull over? Come on, Annie. It's called humor. Learn about it. Besides, I would never last a half hour. I've also always wondered if there was more Tim Heidecker in the movie that got cut out because he's so funny. And, and I think he maybe says one line. He says, I do uh, towards the end. Uh, <laughs> it's the most egregious misuse of <laughs> a comedic genius ever. But we kind of, it always kind of made me laugh. That's like, yeah. here we, he's just there. Know, he's just there, you know. Um, but no, we, we had seen, there was a whole scene where they first meet and he was, he had a lot of funny stuff in it. But it, it, that, it, the first engagement part, but we just had so much movie. I mean, so much stuff to cut out. There are so many people, you know, there's been stories about all the people who auditioned for the movie and, and didn't get in. Um, are there any of those that stood out to you, people that maybe you then worked with, uh, you know, hired for for later projects that just really blew you away in the audition, but for whatever reason, couldn't couldn't fit? People, I mean, we saw so many great people. I mean, Mindy Kaling came in, you know, but I knew her because I'm doing The Office. Busy Phillips came in and she crushed it. She was great. Um, I mean, there was so many... I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, we really saw like everybody. I think Zoe Kazan came in. Uh, everybody. It, it was it was a who's who of talented, funny people, you know. And um, that was the big. That was the hardest thing about casting. Like, you're like, oh my god, we got such a wealth of people. That's why we had to do this kind of final session where we brought a lot of people in and like we're mixing and matching. Like, okay, you three come in and read together. Okay, you three come in and read together. But it very it very quickly started to show us that we just need, you know, you always want to have a bunch of different personality types representing the different types of people. You know, when we really wanted to say, here's the tired, married too long person. Here's (laughs) the newlywed. Here's the one, you know, the the happy single, you know. And um, and so once you think about it that way, then you go, okay, these people are perfect for these roles. And unfortunately, I kind of worked with everybody on The Office. Well, you know, Ellie, I was there when we first hired Ellie on the office yeah but even when you become covey you know i i she was in a like did a walk by in a in a arrested development that we did then she was in an episode of the office when i was producing it so so i i knew you know you knew how great they were yeah that helps um and uh, and they're also great at improv um which i know you did once you once you started production there was this long improv period which is kind of unusual for for films to do that um so what what why did you want to do that and then what came out of that that really changed what the the movie ended up being it's just part of the process really of um with this kind of a comedy you know you you hired the the worst thing you can do 
when you do a comedy like this is to like hire a really funny cast and then go like, all right, just stick to the script, you know, because you're cutting off this font of, of creativity and, and comedic genius, you know? And so what you want to do is adjust the role so that when they get to the set, they, you've got all their, the beginnings of all their ideas that they can be fruitful with, I should say. You know, it's not like they give it all and then you, okay, now we're set. You go like, now you see what their strength is that they want to play that character as. So then you can adjust the situations so that they have more opportunity to play in the world of that character. You know, so like, like Wendy McClendon Covey had, she could do these hilarious runs and these improvs about antidepressants. Like she knew every, the name of every <laughs> antidepressant. She had, they're in her purse and she was like handing them out to people, you know, and like Melissa, you know, and then improv came out of the whole thing about like the, you know, the bachelorette party. We're going to do fight club. You know, we're going to abduct you. You'll get, you know, somebody's going to throw you in a dirty van. With a, with a hood over your head and take you out in the middle of the desert and bury you up to your neck in sand. You know, so these characters' ideas start coming out when you do that. So then we go back, you know, with Annie Mumolo and Kristen and go like, oh, let's, let's add this or let's change this, you know, scene or this, you know, to, to, to use the stuff that they were coming up with and then we can fine tune it and then they can be ready to do it. And, you know, so it's just a way to really make sure you're getting every ounce of, comedic potential out of the actors that you have. Coming up, Paul reveals the, quote, ball-dripping scene that was ultimately cut from Bridesmaids. And he also talks about how the film did and didn't change the landscape for female-driven comedies. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. There are so many other conversations you might enjoy, like the long talk I had with Bridesmaids producer Judd Apatow, or our really fun episode with Mindy Kaling, who was in the running for my Rudolph's role in Bridesmaids. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Paul Fee. For me, the whole stretch on the plane is just 
kind of my my favorite part of the movie and and when i i feel like there's just so much funny stuff there and i was wondering is that that was is that partly is there so much there partly because you decided not to do vegas which was originally part of the part of the plan yeah, we just, you know, we very late in the game kind of, you know, we had this whole Vegas sequence set, you know, and it was all based around the fact that, you know, Annie cashes out her check. So she's got a limited amount of money and she's going to try to compete with Helen and like, Helen could take some expensive restaurant. She's paying. So she runs out of money, you know, so it was a lot of that kind of thing. But then there's a whole set piece that took place in a strip club uh, where they were going to watch these male strippers. And then the big gag was that Kristen gets up on stage and that this cowboy guy is doing, he puts her on the ground and he goes over the top of her, but he's sweaty and like ball sweat drips <laughs> off of his mouth into her, into her mouth as she's like laughing. And so, yeah, so it was like, so we had like, it was a ton of funny stuff, but you know, the hangover had just had been out recently. I remember just, we just one day in the writer's room went like, you know what? We're never going to top the hangover or even if we do top it, People are going to go, oh, it's the female hangover. And there's, it's going to bring all these comparisons. And that's, I remember, then I thought and said, like, well, maybe they just shouldn't get there. You know, maybe it should all fall apart on the plane. And, you know, so Annie was like, oh, I know how to write that. And so she went off. I remember I was on a location scout and we were in the van, the location van <laughs> driving. And I got the, the email with the scene. And I remember just opening the scene and laughing so hard <laughs> in the car. And it was all there. I mean, it was that the, the whole, but it was long. It was a long sequence. But really, I go like, this is all funny. Like it, it all is so logical and it leads up to this big falling apart that there's nothing you could lose. But I remember like, you know, the colonial woman on the wing. I just like that. That was right from her first pages. I go like, this is hilarious. Ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. It appears we've run into a rough patch of weather. So I have an announcement too. There is a colonial woman on the wing. There's a woman on the wing. I saw her. There is something they're not telling us. Right. There's a colonial woman. She was turning Steve. butter. She was turning Steve butter better. on that wing. She is out there right now. Shit. Everyone remain calm. I'm an air marshal. There is something they're not telling us. Yes. I knew it. I got your back, John. There is a woman on the wing. I saw her. There is something they're not telling us. Let's get out. Probably the most famous story about the the production of this movie is the addition of the bridal shop scene and and how that wasn't in the original script and it was the story goes that that Judd and and you were kind of pushing to have something like that in the movie although maybe if the uh, the ball dripping scene had been in there you wouldn't have <laughs> needed it as much. Right. <laughs> um, how do you kind of think about that now? Because there was like I feel like the, there was some like faux controversy around that where it was like the men coming in to add this gross out scene that that wasn't there and that it, was there actually conflict there or how do you how do you think about it now? No, there's no conflict. I think there was just a little bit of nervousness of like, is this, look, look, it's completely justified nervousness because I've seen, you know, see, we've all seen scenes like this in movies where, you know, a big gross out happens and it's almost always I'm always, always kind of like, oh my God, I feel so bad for the actors in the scene, <laughs> you know? And it's always, you know, and I've said it so many times when it's like people are red faced and sweaty and they put like a big wide angle lens in the, you know, in their face and they're cr crossing their eyes and there's shit sounds and farting and they're like, oh, you know, and I go like, and so it's very easy to go like somebody could see the scene, you know, see this and go like, that's how you guys are going to do this. It's like, so I, it was all about like, no, 
I tell you, we're not going to do it like that. We're going to go for it, but I'm still, I'm not, I'm going to try to shoot it in a way where as much as possible, nobody loses their dignity <laughs> or they're fighting to keep their dignity through it, you know, and, 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 you know, so everybody went for it. I mean, you know, Kristen was like, just so when we got to that set, she was just ready to go, you know, and she's coming up with the thing of like, hand me this, you know, she had the little Evian face spray and she would just keep spraying her face and getting sweatier and sweatier. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. So everybody, everybody, you know, everybody went for it. You know, comedy people don't hold back. If, they, if, if the scene makes sense and you can justify it, then they go for it. You know, I don't really care which dress we get. It doesn't matter to me. I just need to get off this white carpet. No, okay. No, not the bathroom. Everybody, go outside. I'm serious. There's a bathroom across the street. Everybody has the flu. We did a screening. We did like a friends and family screening, which I'm not a fan of. So we kind of, you know, we invited all our comedy friends, very friendly you know, comedy professional friends. Yeah. Well, they, they, comedy crowds will get everything that a regular audience doesn't think is funny <laughs> and they will laugh at that and, and and they won't laugh at the stuff that a regular audience thinks is funny it's, it's not a crazy, very realistic uh, representation of what it's going to be like it's crazy so you kind of walk out there going like i don't know what this is you know so it was really i couldn't wait to get us in front of a real audience and i didn't know i mean i knew it was funny but at the same time i didn't know people were gonna be like oh uh, 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 you know um but i remember sitting in that crowd and just the place levitated and you're going like, Oh my God, like that's the kind of thing you dream of. And by the time Maya sinks and I don't think I've ever heard a bigger laugh in a movie <laughs> than when Maya just sinks down is happening, is happening. I mean, and like and do, that was the moment go like, you know, we had a lot of fine tuning to do because we go like, Oh, we can go longer here. Or we can put more here. Or maybe let's take this out. This beat didn't work. You know, we went through, you know, several machinations of, of fine tuning what it eventually turned out to be, but it was, it was pretty pretty much the bones of it were pretty much what you see in the movie it was just it was incremental sort of adding and taking away after that yeah i would say it's up there with the uh, original borat naked fight scene as a you know hardest i've laughed in a movie theater and, and i think for a lot of other people as well yeah i mean that's you know that you dream of that as a comedy person you know and you go in every the funny thing with test screenings is so many times you go in going like here it comes this scene is going to be the <laughs> one and like nothing and you're like what the fuck and then suddenly the one you're like well they're not gonna like this it's like oh my god they love this you know but that's why i'm so addicted you know and judd's the same way we're all addicted to um test screenings because you know we can sit around all day and say like well we think it's funny and go like oh these people are dumb they don't get it but like if they don't laugh they don't laugh you know and that's and that's a bad movie so i love finding out from an audience what is actually the thing that they think is the funniest thing is there an example either from this film or others that something that you took out or changed completely based on a, a test screening Oh gosh, there's so many jokes, you know. Here's an interesting thing. And this is not so much about like an audience not liking it, but it just, we realized we had originally when you first, when Annie first meets Helen, you know, she turns around the big dress and comes over. We had all these hilarious jokes 
like of of Rose Byrne's character be kind of like, oh, so you just come right from work, you know, passive aggressively <laughs> putting down what she's wearing. And then she's like, so, oh, no, I, I work in a jewelry store. She goes, oh, you own a jewelry store? No, no, I work in that. Oh, like she couldn't compute. So it's all these, she was taking all these digs at, at, at Kristen's character. And so those were getting a big laugh. But then when they got to the speech contest, it was, it was pulling, we weren't getting the laughs that we thought we should be getting out of that scene and had this realization of like, oh, well, they already know that she's against Kristen. So now there's just more passive aggressiveness happening on stage. So that we, you know, we made the decision. Even the studio was like, you can't lose those jokes. They're so funny. It's like telling you, we got to lose them. So, you know, now it makes me laugh about that scene where they first meet so much is Helen is completely lovely. (laughs) She would never know. Nothing me. She's lovely. And the audience hates her. By the time she walks away, they just <laughs> despise her. And it's just because she's beautiful and dressed up and lovely and nice. And so that's why then it's so stealthy funny that suddenly this, that thing, that thing happens in the, in the, in the speech off. So that's kind of the, the opposite side of it. I just want to thank you for carefully selecting me as your maid of honor. <laughs> I know you had uh, some other choices, but um, you're like my sister. And I love you. Well, that concludes the speeches for the night. Thank you. One last thing. I, it's rare to meet someone as an adult who you really connect with, and that's you, Lil. I went to Thailand recently with my husband, Perry, and there's a beautiful saying that I learned there. Kun ben sung nong kong chan. Sung chan ja kat madai. Mai ben chen It means you are a part of me, a part that I could never live without and I hope and I pray that I never have to. Kapkunka. Kapkunka. You know, look, there's plenty of shitty jokes that that didn't make it that we thought were hilarious that, that our comedy friends thought was funny. Oh, well, here, okay, I'll tell you, here, I'll tell you a, a real good example of, of that. We did the friends and family screening uh, with our comedy, I should say the, the comedy industry screening. And the opening scene originally after the, the crazy sex scene was, you know, Annie, uh, Annie and John Hamm's character in bed. And she, he's trying to get her to leave and she won't leave. And it, all this kind of funny stuff. He's like, wow, it's really getting late. She's like, oh, this bed's so comfortable, you know, and, and it got literally to the point where he actually like physically pulling her out of the bed and she's hanging on to it. And it was, it got, screams i mean like literally that brought the house down in our in our comedy professional screening and so we were all just like oh my god we got the greatest opening for a movie ever <laughs> like when do you ever have that kind of response so we get to the test screening and i'm sitting there like here it comes and silence dead silence and we're going like what the hell is going on and quickly realize she was pathetic. It made her seem pathetic because he's going like, you got to leave and she won't leave. So everybody's like, Ugh, I don't know if I like this person who's such a, you know, a doormat and so clueless. So that's why we went back in and go like, everything is like, he's so great. He's so great. And the minute he says, I really want you to leave, but I don't sound like a dick. You cut to her leaving yeah, and you go like, oh, leaves. and then people are like, oh, they love her because like, oh my God, she got played, you know? So yeah, that's, that, that's so a, interesting. kind of a perfect example. In terms of the, you know, the reception of the movie, it was, it was such a huge hit and is now just, you know, was the highest grossing, I think, female led comedy, uh, R-rated comedy of all time. But there was so much, you know, that obviously wasn't guaranteed when you were making it and putting it out. Did you feel that pressure to have it be a hit um, that that 
got so much attention because it was this, you know, female led comedy like that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of all we felt all through production. I mean, I, I always referred to it as strike three for me because like if this movie bombed, I was, I was so far, I would be so far in movie jail. Like I got <laughs> sprung to do this, but I already had two strikes on my, cause I did a movie called I am David before I did on company minors and that lost a shitload of money too. But it was a lot of pressure from everybody. We, you know, we had been told by the, basically heard from the studio that if the movie didn't make $20 million opening weekend, it would be considered a failure. Also, the industry was really looking at this movie to see if it would work, you know, because a lot of female writer friends of mine were out pitching similar, you know, kind of female led comedies. And they were all told, look, we got to wait and see how Bridesmaids does, which is so fucked up. The fact that the industry says we got to wait for this one movie before we can let ladies star in a film. <laughs> we're fighting that weird, antiquated uh, thinking. And then our tracking was terrible. We were just we were tracking to be coming to like 13 million dollars opening weekend which we all knew would be, you know, the kiss of death. And then they decided the midnight screen, you know, Thursday night midnight screening before, which you normally do for like action movies or comic book movies, but they decided to do it for this. And I was like, please don't do that. It's a wedding movie. Nobody's going to show up at midnight <laughs> to see a wedding comedy. Uh, and they did it and it didn't do well. And so that next morning I got the call of doom for my agents, you know, and going like, it's no, it's not, you know, did do well. They're, they're definitely sticking to that $13 million weekend projection. And so I just walking around despondent all morning and then early afternoon. But then, you know, like a call came in like, well, it's actually looking more like 15. The matinees aren't as bad as they thought they were going to be, but still like 15, you know, oh, fuck. so, you know, but then I think a little later on, I got a call. Well, they actually, they're thinking 17. I was like, well, maybe, is this going to move? We had invited uh, Ben and Melissa to come over to have dinner because they live in our neighborhood and we're pals. So let's just come over and have dinner and let's kind of be together for <laughs> for this. And as we're eating dinner, these texts start coming in. They're going like, well, actually it's looking like 19 now. And then it was like, suddenly it's actually looking like 20. It's like, bing, what? Yeah. 20, <laughs> like we hit the number. And then, then it's like, actually it's looking like 22. And then we got the ones like, it was actually looking like 24.5. And that's, we all went like, we got to get in the car and we got to go to the movie theater right now. And so we all piled into my car and we drove over to the Arclight in Hollywood and walked into a pack theater rocking with laughter. And that was a moment of like, oh my God, I think we might have pulled this off. How do you explain it? I mean, besides just it being a great movie, is it just, was it very fast word of mouth or what do you think kind of put it over the edge even that first weekend? There's a few things that didn't get it folded into tracking is, I always said for a long time, this is the movie that Twitter made because we did, the studio did millions of, of word of mouth screenings all over, all over the country for in the month or two before we came out, which I, as a filmmaker, you're always kind of like, oh, don't give it away for free. Like, who's going to show up? But Every time I would you know, knew we were doing one, I would go on Twitter and just enter in bridesmaids, and you, all these tweets would start coming up like, "Oh, I just saw the funniest movie," and so we knew the word of mouth was there. But that's why I was so surprised that we weren't tracking better because I was like, "I think everybody knows," but it just you know whoever they were tracking with wasn't part of the word of mouth gang, and so the word of mouth was had penetrated in ways that the numbers crunchers didn't know. It was a turning point in the way word of mouth happens. If it was you know happening on Twitter, which was pretty new at that point. Yeah, yeah, it was really, you know, I was, I'd been into Twitter since 2008, but, you know, never really thought of it as a tool that way back then. And so, yeah, it was a real eye opener. Yeah. Um, you know, for you, this was, 
you know, so you, the movie was a hit, you weren't in movie jail anymore. What did it mean for you and your career and the types of things that you were able to do um, after, after this movie uh, was such a success? It just meant I could make more of these, the kind of movies I wanted to make, which were movies fronted by funny women. That's all I kind of ever wanted to do. The only, those are the only stories I was kind of ever interested in telling. And then I always wanted to kind of play with genres and be able to, you know, flip genres in that way and play around with the tropes of genres, but get the funny women that I know into them. It was this nice feeling of like, okay, now the studios see that movie starring women can make money. There is an audience for these, which is, again, it's so ridiculous that we had to prove that. But so that was a nice thing. Like I, you didn't hit this brick wall that I've been hitting for so many years before that of like, Oh, well, if it stars a woman, we can't do it because it won't, won't sell internationally and men won't show up and blah, 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 blah all these bullshit, you know, excuses. Um, so yeah, so it, it was great. And, you know, I've, you know, it's my favorite thing. I, w- I don't want any other career than what I'm doing now, you know, just finding these projects or developing them or writing them or coming onto them and being able to put talented women in the, these hopefully three dimensional, you know, roles. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned your, your movie that you're working on now is for Netflix. Do you worry about sort of the future of the, the big studio comedy released in theaters, you know, especially after this last year when, you know, there are no uh, theaters. Right. I don't, I don't. Cause I honestly think once this pandemic is safely behind us, people are going to be back in theaters because, you know, I, I, if anything, I think it even reinforced how much we need to be around other people. You know, I mean, it's, it's only so much fun watching something by yourself and it's great. And I'm all for streaming and I think it's great. And it, it becomes an outlet for movies that wouldn't normally be able to get made because they couldn't, you know, a studio wouldn't think they could fill a theater. They might be wrong, but you know, there's certain movies they just wouldn't make that now you can make for streaming. But I don't, I don't, you know, I love movie theaters and I don't think people are ever going to want to give up that, that experience, that common experience. Yeah. I mean, even before the pandemic, there was definitely a, a decrease in, in movie theater in, you know, the success of movie, big movies, especially comedies. I think the ones that you make with Melissa McCarthy are probably some of the last biggest comedy movies that there have been. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, I think it is because people have more, so many options at home. Yeah, I agree. But I, I weirdly think, you know, that I'm an optimist, um, that I do think this experience of everybody being shut in for a year, even though it was nice to binge everything, you didn't get a laugh with people other than the people in the room with you. But you know, the minute you go back into a theater and watch a comedy and you're with a group of people having that experience, I think people go like, oh my God, I've missed this. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it will be really powerful to have that experience for the first time after not having it. Yeah, totally. You know, same with concerts and plays and all that, you know, theater and all that. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about with Bridesmaids is that it was uh, one of the very rare um, comedy films to get Oscar love, which almost never yeah. happens. Um, never. The screenplay <laughs> got nominated and Melissa McCarthy got nominated, which was incredible. Um, you know, this year we have uh, some some nominations for the Borat sequel, which is yeah. e- equally Maria. kind of... I love Maria. Yeah, yeah Maria, Maria Bakalova. Unbelievable. I, I know. I hope she, I really hope she wins. What did that mean for you as a, you know, comedy person to to get embraced uh, by the by the Oscars in that way? You know what? It was, it was a lovely lesson in just doing what you think is good and trying to entertain an audience because I have a real aversion to Oscar bait movies and I love great movies. I just, there's certain movies you kind of go like, are you just making this to try to win an Oscar? And I've seen so many people in comedy get 
pulled by the lure of that, of wanting that validation. And so, you know, I did the same thing. I made a movie called I Am David, which I'm very proud of, but it was a drama about a kid who grows up in a communist labor camp and works his way across, you know, Europe to find his mother who he thinks is dead. Like, you know, not, not a big, not a big laugh riot, <laughs> but I remember kind of part of me going, you know, I wanted to make it and I really loved the material, but part of me in my head was going, oh, I bet I could win awards with this too. And it's just, it's a bullshit thing to chase because you have to be a hundred percent in service of the audience. And then if anything else comes from that, then that's great. And this was the thing, I guarantee you, none of us while we were making Bridesmaids went like, I wonder if we could get nominated for an Oscar or something. <laughs> yeah. it, like, it never crossed our minds. And that's great because that's freeing because if you were thinking about that, we might not have done the dress shop scene. You know, like, oh, we can't put that in an Oscar movie. They're you not going to like and this. It just, totally. And so when we got those nominations, I go like, this is how it should work. You just make what you think is right, entertain an audience. And then if the kudos come... That's great. And if they don't, who cares? Because then you've got a movie that made people happy. And, you know, I still, you know, the greatest award any of us in comedy can have is not a statue. It's people coming up and saying, like, I've watched that movie 20 times and I watch it every time I get depressed. That for us is the greatest reward you could possibly have. Do you have any memories from that Oscar night that stand out? It was fun because we all just felt like, wow, we can't believe we're here. <laughs> you know, you always kind of wish you would win. And yet at the same time, I was kind of like, eh, you know, I, I, it's just amazing to get the nomination. So let's just, we're actually here legitimately. We're not seat fillers. You know, it was fun. We had a blast. We had so much fun. I remember us all at the governor's ball, you know, after that, grabbing all this free food and watching Tony Bennett was singing and just making each other laugh. And um, I wore a white tie tuxedo uh, and, and so did all the waiters. And so everybody thought I was a waiter all night and <laughs> kept asking me to refresh their drinks. So, so there you go. That's funny. So I want to ask uh, a little bit about the other project of yours that I am in love with, which is Freaks and Geeks, um, which, uh, you know, it just had its 20th anniversary last year, which is kind of insane. I'm doing everything on the 10 year plan. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you think back on that show, there was so much, you know, probably anxiety around the way it was promoted and then getting canceled after one season. But now it's kind of one of these, like, it's like the greatest one season perfect thing that everybody loves. So do you think about it differently now at all? Like that it's almost, is there any blessing that it was just this one, this one season that you got to do? Yeah. I mean, I look, I think we would have made great other seasons, but there's also a part of me that goes like, you know what? I'm so happy with everything we did in that show that there's kind of like, we stepped away. We got away with it. <laughs> like we didn't ruin it, you know? And again, I don't think we would have, but who knows? You know, it, it's the hardest thing in the world to know. And it, it's such a complete little story. Look, I mean, there's so many storylines I wanted to have in the upcoming seasons that I never got to do, but I look at it as like, it's like a Berlin Alexander plots or something, you know, going like, it was a bunch of them and it told a complete story and then it was you know, satisfying at the end. So um, I'd rather have had, you know, 18 episodes of something that people loved and we didn't, you know, that didn't fade away or just kind of, you know, underwhelm eventually. But look, look I would have loved if we had eight amazing seasons, but, um, you know, I, I'm glad we have. I can't believe I honestly now knowing what I know about the industry, I can't believe we have what we have. I was so green going into it back then. It's like, who wouldn't love this? You know, and that's kind of how you have to be. It's, it's, sometimes it's better to be stupid, <laughs> in, innocent and stupid than to know too much. I'm sure it's a credit to Allison Jones, but I think the legacy of the show in a lot of ways is just the unbelievable 
talent that came out of it who were completely unknown when it was on. So what has it been like for you to, you know, both work with these people again and again, and also just see them achieve these amazing things? Oh, it's, it's, you feel like such a proud father, you know, I mean, but, but that's the thing, you know, it's, it's when you, when you cast only on talent, or base it on talent first, you know? And I mean, there was characters who weren't, you know, like Jason Siegel wasn't at all like the way I had written him, you know, when I, based on the people I knew and the way I wrote him in the script. And yet going, I remember like when he was in there going like, oh God, he's so great, but he's not quite right. And Judd's like, yeah, but he's great. And it's like, you're right. Let's rewrite the part to make him so we don't lose him. So you got all these people that you knew had a deep bench of talent. I don't think we knew exactly how deep it was, but we knew there was something there because we knew, you know, when you're doing a TV show, you need to feed off the people, the actors in the show, because they're going to keep you moving forward and inspire you for the writing, you know, and you're going to want to discover different parts of their personality that then you can use. Um, and so it's why you don't, you know, at least we don't tend to, when we're cast, kind of go like, oh, this person's great at just saying those lines. Like, that's of sort of the least interest to us <laughs> yeah. versus, you know, that's why we like to do some kind of improv or even go like just you know i was like right just long speeches that aren't in the movie or the show just so somebody can can really do showcase who they are and i always go like look don't even be religious of the words i just want to hear what you can do given a big run versus like somebody going like, yes and then somebody else reads the line and go i will agree you know you're just saying little short lines doesn't tell you anything but by doing that you see this fully full-fledged kind of personality and persona come out that then you go oh my god there's so much i can play with and work with there and they're so inventive or they're, you know, they just have these other layers that you're not aware of that it doesn't surprise me now by how talented they are because you go like, these were just talented kids who weren't just, just, just actors who could recite lines. They were creative, you know, creative forces. The performance on that show that has always just blown me away more than anyone else is Martin Starr. All right, here's the bet for 10 bucks. Drink this much of anything. Anything? Anything. As long as it's something you can eat. Okay, only stuff from the kitchen, nothing from the bathroom and nothing from the garage. Okay. And it has to be food. Okay, nothing from under the sink. Okay, no cleansers, no detergent, no, no furniture polish, and no cut up bits of sponge. Okay. I'm just trying to win 10 bucks here. I don't want to die. And I just have to ask you, I've always just wanted to know, is that what he was like? Or is he was he like the most brilliant teenage actor of all time? He's brilliant. I mean, he's really brilliant. He's got that funny energy to him, kind of a low-key energy, but that he that's a that's a that's an acted part you know i mean first of all he's very cool in real life we had to make him stop working out he was working <laughs> out and he had these big muscly arms and <laughs> like he's like martin you gotta stop working out you're <laughs> yeah, supposed that's to be not a nerd. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We don't need, you know, Carrot Top showing up. But no, he was great, but such a pro. I mean, the kids were all pros. That was so nice about it. But it was fun. But I feel like they kind of, as mature as they were, they really matured over the course of the season, just in their craft and learning what was expected of them. And, you know, in, in, in different varying levels. I mean, obviously, Linda Cardellini was a 
total pro when she came in and done a ton of stuff. Franco had done a ton of stuff, you know, but then he had, yeah, got like John Francis Daly was, you know, a pretty newcomer. He'd been on Broadway, but, um, but, you know, in a small, small way. And Sam Levine was, you know, just this wacky kid who did impressions and, and all this. And then Martin, you know, so it, it was very, very, um, very satisfying. It, it, it continues to be satisfying. I'm so happy when I see them doing well. Was there a character on that show that really, that you related to the most or when you were writing it that really came from you the most? Yeah, I think Lindsay, honestly. I mean, that was, Lindsay was my favorite because Lindsay was the only character who wasn't loosely based on somebody I knew. She was really based on the fact that I, oh, I was an only child and I always wished I had an older sister. And I kind of, it kind of invented my perfect older sister in her. But that, you know, that was where I got to start working with great, you know, of like a female character and then trying to find the three-dimensionality in that character. It, that time I was in my mid thirties and going through a lot of angsty kind of mid thirties guy stuff. And remember thinking this is the perfect thing because the angst that I'm having as a 35 year old man, I can put onto a 16 year old girl who, and we're about the same maturity level, you know, a 16 year old girl is probably about the same maturity level as a guy in his thirties, you know, a nerdy guy in his thirties. And so it was fun to kind of, you know, that whole, her whole thing with seeing grandma die and her angst about what is there. I, I was just kind of becoming an atheist at the time. And so it was like, you know, coming out of a religious upbringing. And so I just piled all that into her. So yeah, I, I love Lindsay's character and, and Melinda, you know, was Linda was, it was, crazy because again i had kind of as i was writing it kind of invented this person in my head of what she kind of looked like and so when linda came in it was just like oh my god it's like almost like the person in my head came out and walked into the room and i was just like on fire like this is her like all let's not audition anybody else like we found her and there she is did you go follow the grateful dead around uh, during a summer uh, during <laughs> high school no i was not a dead <laughs> not, not at all i actually honestly i became Lindsay when i wrote that episode because Judd was the one who was like, maybe she goes off and, you know, travels with the dead. And I was like, oh, that's a cool idea. So then I, not knowing the dead, other than the, you know, the, the songs that they play on the radio constantly, you know, trucking and the, the, all the known ones, went and got a bunch of Grateful Dead albums and got American Beauty and put it on and experienced it for the first time as I was write, coming up with the story and writing the episode. And so I had a very pure, Lindsay is me yeah, in that in that show, <laughs> like falling in love with Box of Rain, going like, this is the greatest song I've ever heard, you know? So it really helped, again, kind of, you know, make me the, the 16-year-old girl that, uh, <laughs> that, that Lindsay was. I love that. Well, we end uh, the episodes of this podcast by uh, asking comedians about other comedians who have really made them laugh the hardest in their life. So I'd love to do a really quick uh, kind of speed round, starting with your childhood. Who's a, who's a comedian that one of the first comedians who really made you laugh as a kid? Uh, Groucho Marx. <laughs> I mean, not, not, not stand-up, but a comedic persona. I was a Groucho Groucho fanatic. And then from there, uh, I moved into Steve Martin, who was my hero, my absolute hero. I used to, I used to stand up and mouth along with his albums. Like I <laughs> bought a microphone, I bought a white three piece suit. I would put it on every night, turn on the album and perform. Exactly. Hard to believe that a cool guy like me would do that. And then next would be, is there a moment, uh, on set that stands out to you over everything that you've made that you just laughed really hard, you know, because of something that was, was happening on set? Oh, I mean, that's, it's really hard to, I mean, I've had so many of those moments because I've worked with so many funny people. I mean, other than, you know, moments in my movies, I mean, honestly, some of the hardest I remember laughing uh, was at Will Arnett when we were shooting Arrested Development. 
he just destroyed me. Um, everything, his choices were so funny because they were so overly serious and hilarious. And Steve Carell, working with him on The Office, I mean, he could just reduce me to tears. I always have to move my monitors further and further away from the set because <laughs> I would just burst out laughing. But then, you know, Melissa on, on, on our movies, it just, it, honestly, I can't pick because I laugh so much because I, I mean, there's so many funny performances and the stuff I've done. And then finally, is there somebody of a, of a younger generation, an up-and-comer um, that you want to shout out who you think is, is really funny that you think maybe deserves more attention than they've received? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, there's so many funny... I mean, I, honestly, I, I think Maria, you know, who is in... Uh, yeah, in, in, in Borat. Borat. She, she is... I've been dying to work with her. We had a great meeting, and then I just kind of... Yeah, she's, isn't her. she working and, with Judd? Yeah, she is. That's why I tried to put her in my movie, and she's busy on Judd's. <laughs> so, I can't wait to see what she does next. Me too. It's funny, because when I made the infamous movie, I Am David, Strike One, as I like to call it, we shot that in Bulgaria, and so I really love the Bulgarian... <laughs> people and and knowing that she's from there we just when we met we just had so much that we could talk about just from that experience alone and uh i think she's great yeah well maybe she'll star in your uh she'll star in a movie of yours someday and that'll be very exciting for us to see there you go exactly a beanie feldstein too i think is oh yeah she's great well good luck with the the movie you're working on now and uh, i'll be i'll be looking forward to seeing it um and uh yeah i've just loved so much of your work over so many years so it's really a, a pleasure to talk to you thanks man i appreciate it it was really a lot of fun Thank you so much to Paul Feig for taking so much time to reminisce about one of my favorite movies. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Bridesmaids is available to stream exclusively on Peacock all summer long, so if you now feel like you need to rewatch it, they have you covered. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.